Welcome to the Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And there is no emotion, there is peace. There is no ignorance, there is knowledge. There is no passion, there is serenity. There is no chaos, there is harmony. There is no death, there is the Force. That, of course, is the Jedi Code, um, immortalized in the sides of the Jedi Temple. Um, not seen in Star Wars Episode One, but certainly uh, it is when, deep within the spirit of the film. So yeah, if you couldn't guess, folks, we're doing Star Wars Episode One, <laughs> The Phantom Menace, uh, released in oh, yeah. 1999, um, the uh, the beginning of the end, that uh, time long ago, uh, unfortunately in the same galaxy that we <laughs> the galaxy right here. <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is the uh, the last pre 911 star wars movie actually yep yeah for sure um so everyone everyone listening to this knows what star wars is and knows what the prequels are um very little can be said about the cultural cachet of these films but we're going to do it anyway star wars episode one the phantom menace um starring liam neeson ewan mcgregor natalie portman samuel l jackson jake lloyd ian mcdermott anthony daniels kenny baker and ahmed best um, As the best character of Jar Jar Binks, fuck you all. Ahmed, Ahmed, quote unquote, the best <laughs> as Jar Jar Binks. Um, so yeah, the, the prequels have a checkered reputation at best. Um, I, I do think the perception of these films has softened in recent years, especially after Disney started putting out their their era of the films. Um, but I, th- I think the, the consensus online and in, and in like the real world is that the prequels are markedly uh, inferior to the original trilogy. Right. You know, I was nine years old when these films were released. This was um, a few years after the re-releases of the original trilogy. I was mm-hmm. the exact market for these films, as were same. you. I mean, we were same. basically yeah. the same age at that point. Um so yeah, I remember fucking loving this shit. Like I ate it all <laughs> yes. up. I saw it in theaters maybe once or twice. I didn't go too many times just because like I I didn't drive. My parents had to take me, but I saw it a shit ton of times on VHS. Yes, VHS. Yep. I still have that VHS. I also think this is the last Star Wars movie that got a VHS release. Yeah, you're probably right. By the time the next one rolls around, I mean everybody has DVD. And interestingly enough, I know I know the re-release of the original trilogy as well as the shadows of the empire multimedia project those were like soft uh dress rehearsals for the out for like the rolling out of the of the prequel trilogy um they they released the special editions as a way to like gauge reassess public interest in in preparation for um this massive corporate orgy of like of the of the prequel trilogy (laughs) Yeah, it's genius from that perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. like you that is why we have the insane fandom that we have today. If if the if the yep. original trilogy wasn't re-released and you just dropped the prequel trilogy films, you would only mm-hmm. have the middle-aged men who saw these films like flock to it the way that they did. I don't I don't know about that. I I I think pre prequel era um, there was enough cultural affection across like all, you know, like the classic four quadrant movie, like movie going audience, like Star Wars was still a cultural household name at that point. 
um, and stuff like the expanded universe and stuff like the the special edition re-releases did a lot to help keep that alive. But I think even without that stuff, if they if they announced, hey, we're doing episode one, um, maybe it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as big as it was. But um, it's it still would have done quite well, I think. Yeah, I think it would have done well for sure. I just think like um, from my own experience, like I didn't really interact with star wars all that much until the re-releases of the original trilogy like i wasn't someone who read the books you know the expanded universe i was aware that it existed for sure like i remember i had this like frisbee from the 80s like a burger king frisbee that had star wars on it i was like aware of star wars as a franchise but i i i didn't have like parents who were all that into it i had family members who were but uh, I don't know. I just think like the the re-release of the original trilogy is such a flashpoint moment for some sure. of the kids like me who weren't like as engrossed in it and as much of just like total fucking losers like you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was constructing this metaphor in my head as we were talking about. Uh, we were both younglings at the time. Um, <laughs> oh however, I I was force sensitive because I was trained in the Star Wars arts from a young age. Uh, whereas it passed you by so like you're you're clearly a johnny come lately here and uh, i i've kept the spirit of the jedi order uh burning ever since ever since i could conceive of the world well basically what you're Um, saying is that i'm anakin uh because anakin comes to it no (laughs) no Uh, i don't like this well actually that is one of the that's a good uh segue into one of the biggest problems with this movie that i personally have and and i think is a pretty pretty universally hated the idea of like a chosen one of like a messiah of the force it kind of came out of nowhere before this movie came out and um it's it's not only is it to this film's detriment um at, at least i think so it kind of set the the template for future nerd properties and nerd movies going forward like e- even to today like one of the most maligned aspects of um popular entertainment one of the most contemporary maligned aspects of popular entertainment is that there's too much of a focus on like chosen ones, special hero destiny stories. Um, and I think a lot of that can be traced back to the Anakin as the chosen one of the force. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of more modern storytelling, um, yes, I, I don't think we have to blame it all on just um, this film. I think we could just blame it entirely on the star Wars franchise, you know, for yes. um, just, yes using um joseph campbell's mono myth as like a paint by numbers for yeah. uh you know for screenwriting basically and to to again to come to george lucas's defense because th- that's what we're doing with these episodes um i i think when he did it originally um with the original and with the prequel trilogy he he does it better th- these movies do it better than um than a lot of like contemporary movies and, and they do it less explicitly, like less obviously and hitting you over the head with it. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think when George Lucas um, used, you know, Joseph Campbell's uh, hero with a thousand faces as, as um, you know, a roadmap for his movies, I think uh, he came from a more genuine place, you know, um, he probably like 
actually read the book uh, as opposed to most people who just read <laughs> yes. uh, the numerous screenwriting books that are um, just grafting, you know, uh, Campbell's work and um, putting it in, you know, uh, script doctor language, basically. Um, okay. And, and you know, the man had, George Lucas had actual influences of classic film and classic stories, you know, fables mm-hmm. um, and folk tales throughout the you know, the world that really um, just influenced every beat of of the original trilogy and even the prequel trilogy to a certain extent. Yeah, and another huge influence on Lucas is he's arguably the most famous in the original Weeaboo because he loves um, <laughs> he loves his Kurosawa, he loves his uh, Japanese samurai influence. And while we're still on the, the stuff about this movie that we don't like, I, I guess... I will say my, my biggest problem with the prequel trilogy, um, but this movie in particular, um, is the way that Jedi are presented because um, everyone kind of rags on the Jedi like, oh, they're so boring, blah, blah, blah. Like they, they suck. They're they're not what's fun about Star Wars. But um, if you take away the Force and the Jedi from Star Wars, like you're just left with kind of like a generic space Western. So there there is something to be said for the influence of this concept, like a space Taoist wizard um because it is a cool concept but this episode one really fumbles the presentation because um the jedi order is presented as like this flawed institution which makes sense thematically but it they're almost flawed in a way that wasn't intended in that um that requires like a different alternate read of the film yeah it's interesting like one of the first notes i wrote i was like the Jedi are just like that asshole cop that you like don't want to interact with when you pass him by on the street. Um, and it's like, it's weird. Cause like you'd think, okay, so the setup for this film is there's like this big trade dispute within the galaxy, um, the Republic as the governing body is called. Um, so they send the Jedi to uh, like just to talk to the trade federation and make some kind of deal as, as conceived it's, it's kind of a cool, I, I would say arguably leftist idea of conflict resolution, em- empathetic wise and um, kind of like a, a cosmopolitan worldview of like these negotiators who can go in and who can mediate conflict between two opposing parties um, where it falls apart is when they get to play like vigilante superhero by whipping out their laser swords and like, right. <laughs> like they stop being mediators. Yeah. They stop being mediators when they just take their, their, their lightsabers out and they just start murking robots. And then it's like, are you going to go kill the trade federation aliens? Like I just, I did not understand the, the, the path that they chose, the narrative path they chose here. And see like that, setup could be a good construction of oh this institution has like has internalized corruption it has internalized rot it is not living up to like the the pacifist and and idealist standards that they that they're committed to which in turn leads to the organization's downfall but like lightsaber fighting is presented as like this inherently neutral thing that can be used for good ends um which goes against the spirit of the Jedi order, which kind of like undercuts the whole thematic point of this fucking trilogy. Yeah, no, it's interesting to have, and and we see it even later in the next two films, but yeah, to just have 
the the lightsaber fights be um, their own form of conflict resolution seems yeah. counterintuitive to the spirit of the Jedi. So I that was like just I don't know I yeah I, from the beginning I was like I just don't why would you send these two fucking assholes into the situation? And the films kind of like do the sleight of hand thing where they get away with it because they're just killing droids like they're, like they're not killing people right so like of course they can slaughter these troops by like the dozens and they're still like morally pacifist arguably yeah no um it's true it it it, sleight of hand is a good way of of phrasing it this film as much as i think we actually do enjoy this film uh it it is it is it is full of sleight of hand full of ways to uh, manipulate the audience into not actually thinking about these questions at all one might say the film performs a jedi mind trick on the audience yeah one could say that uh yeah or one could just uh not be that person thank you (laughs) but i am that person so (laughs) tough shit um but yeah um like i alluded to earlier for all the film's failures in presenting the the core protagonists and characters as jedi and like the the institution of the jedi for all the ways that it fails at doing that um the failure or or the the skewed presentation does lend itself to a very valid alternate reading of this film um, I'm not going to claim that I came up with this theory. I, I've, I've kind of like aggregated it from like reading God fucking fucking decades of, of star Wars prequel criticism. But I, I do think this movie in the prequel trilogy, um, act as a very sharp, very pointed critique of neoliberalism of neoliberalism's utter, utter inability to substantively, uh, combat fascism in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I think um, the Jedi Order, as it's presented, is is like this um, this this perfect analogy for that. Like you know, this very sclerotic organization yes. that has very little function in the world, um, or at least very little practical function in the world, besides mm-hmm. you know being symbolic. Um, and when it does actually try to act in the world, it 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 like markedly makes things worse. <laughs> it makes things worse, and it is a complete complete stooge of fascism as represented by the sith yeah. as represented by the sith not only being like this covert shadowy organization but also literally leading the republic right yeah i mean um in in this film uh yeah the the sith uh i mean you know this is all spoiler stuff and it's all stuff that we see spoiler, more in the, yeah. in the in the second and third film of course but you know um uh, Palpatine uh, becomes chancellor of the the Senate in this movie, and that's because of his you know 4D chess he's playing as mm-hmm. a, a Sith Lord, uh, you know, uh, gallivanting around as an actual senator. Um, and yeah, he I mean he creates the Empire uh, from the you know fr- from the mismanaged wreckage of a neoliberal uh, you know galactic um, governing body. As, as a quick aside, I, I think we can safely just, like, ignore spoil, spoiler warnings um, for this episode, because, like, nobody who listens to this episode will not know the plot of episode one backwards and forwards. Yeah, that's fair. I just don't want to talk too much about the upcoming uh, episodes. Mm, okay, okay. Don't want to spoil quick it note. for our fans. <laughs> that's true. Um, quick note for um, the whole Palpatine Sidious thing. When I was a kid, like, ever, ever since I... Like from episode one, when it, when it was introduced, all the way up to episode three, when it was revealed, I always thought it was so damn obvious 
that Palpatine was Darth Sidious that like it seemed too obvious. I thought they were gonna do another uh, sleight of hand like bait and switch in Episode Three or something. Um, but no, like he he just is. Palpatine is Sidious, and um, I kind of do appreciate that these movies pre- are presented as like with the assumption that you don't know anything that happens in the sequel trilogy. They're they're starting from like scratch with all of the secret reveals and everything. Yeah, I was um, I was kind of uh, surprised at how few like um, blatant callbacks there were to mm. the original trilogy. Honestly. Um, you know, as we discussed in our episode about, um, solo, like there's, there's plenty of callbacks. I mean, that's the, to the detriment of the film, there are right. callbacks. Right. Um, but this film, it's just introducing characters that, you know, we ha- know and love and it's just their origin stories in a more organic way. I mean, such as R2-D2, such as C-3PO, um, Yoda, of course. I think, um, e- even with a, even like they literally go back to Tatooine, which is where we start the first episode four. But like even the presentation of the same planet, um, it, it Mos Espa in episode one is pretty, it's different enough than Mos Eisley in episode four. Even that similarity that um, does not give rise to like rote repetition um, kind of speaks to these film strengths. And the difference here, the difference between the prequel trilogy and the, the solo movie is that uh, Disney is very much pandering to that nostalgia and hitting those beats. Whereas, once again, Lucas showed, for all his faults, he had a more unique, cohesive vision going in. I should probably know this, but were these films made by... No, these weren't made by Disney, right? Like, Disney bought no. the rights to these after... Yeah, because that was pretty recent, right? Like, only in like 2010, 2011, when they bought the rights? Yeah, th- this was 20th Century Fox um, in, in in Lucasfilms. Um, and then Disney bought the rights to Star Wars. God, it was after I graduated college, so I want to say it was like in 2013 or 2014. Yeah, I think that sounds right. They released The Force Awakens in 2015. And then they're doing one a year since then. Um, but yeah, they. I, I have mixed feelings on the whole Disney era. Um and we'll we'll get into that throughout the throughout the rest of the month. But um, by and large, they you you can tell they're like they didn't have the ki- the type of like game plan that Lucas had going into this prequel trilogy, or any game plan. Like honestly, I don't even know yeah. what J.J. Abrams' game plan was except to remake A New Hope with you know different characters and um, the same settings more or less. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out strong on this. Um, episode one is definitively a better film in almost every way than the force awakens yep yeah no i agree um it's 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 um apples to oranges honestly like yeah. i mean just force awakens is, is shoddy craftsmanship all around arguably the only thing that force awakens does a little bit better is the acting the performances um for for as much as i do like episode one the some of the performances are, are just wooden like yeah they, they need they, they needed to do a few more takes on on a bunch of the on a bunch of the takes almost but, every take <laughs> yeah yeah they did um which is weird because like you have good actors here 
it, yeah. it just... I mean, classically trained actors all around. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, even Natalie Portman, she's in um, Leon the Professional before this. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. she's great in that movie. I don't know if yeah. they just, like, if George Lucas had a hard time, like, explaining how to act, like, queenly and stately to her. And she was just like, okay, I'll act like a fucking robot. And I, yeah. I don't know. And, and that that's one of the common criticisms of these of these of this trilogy is like the Jedi are robots, they have no emotion, and then fans are like, God, fucking Star Wars fans are the worst. They can justify anything. Like, of course the Jedi are emotionless, because they're they're told not to not to show emotion. Like they're supposed to be stoic and they're supposed to be like in control of their fear and their anger. So I don't know. We we can rationalize any criticisms away, which is one of the beauty uh, the beauties of the Star Wars fandom. It's interesting. Like the Jedi, to me, especially the Jedi Council, like um, Mace Windu, Samuel Jackson, Yoda, and then what's the guy? Kiati Mundi, the guy with the big Kiati head. Mundi, like uh, who the same actor also plays uh, Newt Gunray and also plays the pilot of Obi Wan and Qui Gon's um, diplomatic shuttle. Oh, uh, one okay. of the first one of the first characters seen on screen. Huh. But um, yeah, those three Jedi like they don't even come off as emotionless. They just come off as jerks. Like they come off as pricks. They're huge pricks. Pricks the whole time. Yeah. Like yeah. I, it's it is. I was I was baffled by that. Like I mean, I haven't seen these <laughs> in over a decade, and I was just like, oh my god, they're so shitty to this child. Yeah, like, they're so shitty to Qui Gon and 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 Anakin. And again, it's so fucking frustrating because like we are so close to having such a great deliberate criticism of like institutionalized um, heartlessness. Right. Like, cause you have, you have the alternate character, you have Qui-Gon who's presented as like this maverick kind of like more hippie, more empathetic Jedi, or he's supposed to be presented that way. He in presenting him as actually caring for Anakin would be such a good contrast to like the stoginess of the Jedi council. But like, that just does not come across. No, not at all. Actually, like I didn't even throughout the whole movie. I was just like, I don't. I have no interest in Qui Gon Jinn. I was just like, I hope you die. Mm-hmm. Like you're so. He's just so. Um, yeah, he's just it's really boring. I mean, I yeah. don't know. Again, yeah. I don't know what Luke. Uh, I I don't know what Lucas told. You know, um, Liam Neeson, like how to act. You know, how to. I mean, um, just how to portray this character. But even some of the character beats, like, um, I just there wasn't a lot there like it was just he was just set up to be the mentor to me and it was, he was just set up to die yeah he in in the expanded universe and like in, in like the novelization he he is very much presented as like a proponent of something called the living force um which is like honestly more more of a Taoist conception of um of the force which is what lucas was originally going for back in his crazy 70s hippie days um and and it, it, it's just such a missed opportunity because like, like we said earlier, if this acting was better, I really think these movies would be a lot more beloved than they are. I, I think it just comes down to acting, honestly. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, that's fair. And I think um, something that we haven't really touched on that um, is probably the sole uh, contributing factor to why these films are not beloved is the internet and internet discourse and nerddom as we know it right now um the internet was in its infant stages at this Mm -hmm. point um it was mostly chat rooms and geocity websites and porn um, and porn i mean that was really the internet at this time um and the discourse the toxic discourse that 
that was constructed around this film is probably legendary. It's legendary and it's what we're living in. We're living in the fallout of that right now. I think um, kind of symbolizing this in in like almost too perfect a way is that I think if not, if, if the trailer for episode one wasn't the first trailer to be released on the internet, it was definitely like the first to get like such a wide release and to be, to go viral. Right. Like I, I remember stories of people downloading like on, on their shitty dial up, like, like starting their day, starting to download this trailer, going to work, coming back home and then freaking out when they saw what they want, like what they downloaded. Like I, I downloaded or like my, my parents helped me download this, um, this trailer when I first dropped. And um, the way that dropping like uh, marketing for a movie in like having like this conversation kind of shape the expectations um, that started with this movie that started in 1999 with episode one. And um, I do think the insane buildup in like the, like absolutely undercutting that buildup when the movie finally came out, um, it definitely abetted the rise of toxic nerd fandom. Yeah. I, I mean, it totally, it's, it's rotted our brains, honestly. Mm. Like I, uh, if it's, if it's, you know, the buildup for Marvel films, if it's the buildup yes. for the new Star Wars trilogy, if it's mm-hmm. the buildup for just like literally any nerd franchise film, even to some respects, the Star Trek, the new Star Trek films, mm-hmm. like just the, the culture of internet movie and nerd criticism that was born from this film. Um, it is, it is, it has become so toxic to the way the discourse, the discourse around literally any movie. Um, if it's not the exact thing that fans want, then, you know, they have to flip their shit. Just, you know, God forbid, uh, an artist, a creator, Um, a team of artists, you know, makes one little thing that they don't like, you know, for this, for this film, it would be Jar Jar. Um, You know, fans are going to flip their shit. And now, you know, in the world of, um, in the world of like crowdsourcing and, you know, this, uh, this immediate connection with social media, we have stuff like the fucking Sonic the Hedgehog movie that it was just announced on Twitter that because people didn't like Sonic the Hedgehog's fucking character design, uh, they're going to spend millions of dollars and have animators like just crunch, not even crunch time, not even see their families, uh, and friends for you know weeks on end just so yep. like five nerds will be very happy that sonic has like the the mono eye and like spikier hair in this fucking movie and this is all star wars's fault and but we still like this movie <laughs> <laughs> well that kind of that kind of encapsulates the complexity of of this shit and and why like it's so frustrating because i'm i'm no huge fan of sonic i i never i never play the games that much but like it was a shitty design so like i i can't really fault the people who who find the, the fans who find fault with sonic's design for the movie but the answer is not to demand that a studio basically re- reshoot the entire goddamn movie um with with the preferred design i don't know i'm, I'm still i'm still feeling conflicted about this and like not I'm, I'm conflicted between my dark side and my light side inside. I guess all of which is to say, like, the discourse around 
the fandom and the mythos of Star Wars is a microcosm of um, fan entitlement writ large. And um, no matter how positively it's spun that people want quality stories, they, they, want, they want good design, they want things they can like, they want things they can find resonance with, you can't cling to that shit so much that it bleeds out into the real world and affects people um, in a negative way. Because, uh, once again, episode one led the charge with that one, because, like, Jake Jake Lloyd's life was absolutely destroyed by the fans. I'm at best infamously uh, made several suicide attempts um, because of the way he was treated by by the supposed fans of this franchise. And, yeah, Jar Jar's weird and annoying sometimes. Yeah, Jake Lloyd gives a lot of wooden line readings, but, like, to to persecute these people for like a fucking movie about space wizards is insane. No, definitely. Like throughout the whole movie, I just kept saying to myself, if you hate Jake Lloyd's performance, you are scum. I just kept saying that to myself yes. over and over again. I was like, he's not that bad. He's, he's not, not that, that bad. bad. He's a child. He's like, what? Seven years old. Like, he's, yeah, he's, 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 not, he's nine years old. Oh, okay. Sorry. It was wow, important. Was, Cause I, I was nine years old too. Yeah. Up, he's so our that's, age. That's yeah. crazy. Wow. That's, yeah. That's why that's one of the reasons I'm kind of defensive about Jake. <laughs> but like, yeah, I wouldn't have done a, that uh, even that good of a job like at nine yeah. years old. I mean, like, I don't know his, you know, if he had training, if he was, you know, classically trained or anything. He was in Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah, that's that's right. I forget that he, he wants his Turbo kid. Man doll. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, I don't know. There's a lot riding on him and riding on yeah. that performance. Right. Like, yeah. You know, who knows what what is a contributing factor into the the wooden acting for, especially for a child actor like that. You know, you can blame a lot on George Lucas, but th- there are acting coaches on set usually. Like, I'm sure he had an acting coach. I'm sure he had an assistant and just a, cr- a crew of people. Um, and you know, it like it's he's just a he's just a kid. Like, it's just crazy. This fucking. This fucking movie. <laughs> and he, he did no worse of a job than acclaimed thespians such as like Liam Neeson and Samuel L. Jackson, like and, and like right. Ian McDermott like Ian McDermott, like the Shakespearean stage performer, like I don't know. Uh, he he did kind of he's kind of a standout Ian McDermott in this in this trilogy. He just he just loves his shit. Yeah. Um But yeah, um Star Wars fandom is the worst. Um the kind of the self-reflexive and self-hating and self-consuming nature of Star Wars fandom is, is just a, a representative of the larger issue with, with quote unquote nerd culture and the way that corporate interests present itself in a way that it's been completely subsumed by, by the, by the forces and the vicissitudes of capital. Um, even, even hating, even self-criticism of Star Wars, fan, like of Star Wars, like lore has, has been, monetize like infamously like the, those red letter media videos which are are oh, were pretty Jesus. informative yeah i mean i i still think they have some value but like those guys have gone on to to monetize their own youtube and film and nerd criticism and everything and like i i guess just the influence of of capital and the influence of of looking to to make your voice heard in a way that like feels meaningful it's inescapable with this stuff. It, it it is so inherently tied up with this whole franchise, and um, I mean, we're doing it. I'm not like yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to throw stones in glass houses or anything. Um, 
things can be flawed and, and fucked up and you can point that out without like con- condoning them and in- inescapable without condoning them. Um, I don't know. In, in, in summation, Star Wars is a land of contrasts. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Well, with Star Wars and, you know, with the, the more, uh, and, uh, you know, ascendant, um, like fan influence on films that we see nowadays, um, it just it does drive home what a lot of people will say about film, uh, especially big budget Hollywood films, is that these things are products. You yeah. know, I mean that you know it's in, that's inescapable at this point. Yeah. Um, so it, you know it, there are people who will say, and I've seen this discourse online. You know, again regarding Sonic the Hedgehog, regarding you know the prequels, regarding any film, um, even regarding the the most recent um, Avengers film. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you are not making a film that the fans will want to buy tickets to, that they don't want to buy merchandise to, then you know the creators of these films be it the directors be it the screenwriters then they have done a disservice to the fans because they they produced a shoddy product basically Mm -hmm. i mean that is the consumer discourse is is a big discourse you'll see online nowadays um and it's you know it's probably it's existed for you know a a while probably you, you could say I think it exists. I think it started with Star Wars, with the original yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> what, what one of the one of the contributors, one one of the main like one of the main reasons that George Lucas became so wealthy, and one of the reasons that Star Wars was, was such a success, was that um, his original contract, I think, with Fox, was that he would receive like ninety five percent of all the all the sales on Star Wars related products. And so when Star Wars took off, and of course everyone was buying the toys. Well, like he, he made off like a bandit. He, um, he, he was wealthier than a hut on Narshada, one might say. And, um, and yeah, I, I think Star Wars definitively, it, it's like one of the first movie sagas where the, the, the products, the, uh, the merchandising, um, officially made more money than like ticket sales and than the movie itself. So anyway, let's do our part in the culture war by talking about this uh, movie from two decades ago that we love despite ourselves. <laughs> oh, I forgot that we were talking about a movie and not the culture uh, surrounding this film. <laughs> I, well, okay. I, I got lost in it too. What can I say? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, th- this movie, um, wh- one of the reasons I do like this movie uh, is that it is not a retread of any of the original trilogy it is its own story very much uh, <coughs> cough cough episode seven um <laughs> but like it it is very much very much involved in the plot is like well you know like politicking and trade disputes and, and backdoor deals and like the, the the corruption of a democracy from within and um that stuff is good like that is not bad everyone rags on like the the trade federation set up a blockade, a, a trade blockade around the planet and they have to resolve it in the Senate. But then they find out that they can't resolve it in the Senate. Like people rag on the phone for that, but it, that, that I'm going to use that term. I hate again, world building that like that, I, that, that conception of politics behind, um, behind the action, even if it's like made up space politics, that is the meat of the story. And that, that gives it like substance. Right. I mean, we we could not have the original trilogy without doing this 
um, you know, world building, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you don't have the politicking, if you don't have the palace intrigue, if you don't have, you know, um, these betrayals, um, if, if you don't have literally any of this, yeah. then we, w- yeah. we cannot get to a place where the empire exists mm-hmm. and we have this, you know, rogue ba- band of scoundrels uh, fighting in a resistance. Like, because, you know, where, where, where is it going to come from? Honestly, where do you think that shit comes from? I swear, I swear to God, I swear to the force. This will be the last time I mention episode seven in this episode. But um, that is what that movie needed. That movie needed some politics. It needed some exposition. It needed some, literally, it needed some dialogue, like telling the state of 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 the galaxy. Because like, if if there's no connectedness, if there's no stakes, like why the hell do we care about this shit? Like, yeah, there 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 is. Per- there is like personal growth and character growth and like spirituality, like kind of tenuous and Hollywood spirituality with the force. But like that stuff's so ephemeral. We, we need, um, we need scenes of the galactic Senate in session and chancellor of Warham, uh, being given a vote of no confidence. Like that, that stuff provides a framework for everything else to hang on to. Right, exactly. And we don't have anything like that in episode seven. No. I mean, ostensibly, a lot of shit happens between episode six and seven. And yeah. we just have to fill in a lot of those blanks. A lot of those yep. narrative blanks are just filled in with, um, you know, some sparse lines of dialogue um, and and, uh, and some flashbacks. But uh, honestly, like, I... I what's the state of the of the government you know like what is what does that look like because it's not the an empire right at that point the empire has fallen what yeah. what happens after the empire falls i don't fucking know i mean what, one of the one of the ways that phantom menace uh, succeeds pretty brilliantly um is that it gives you all that context and it provides more details in the expanded universe lore if you want to go into them but you certainly don't need to for episode one to, to piece together what's happening with episode one. Um, even, even if you don't like it, which a lot of fans don't, um, the information you need is presented in the movie right there. It's presented in dialogue. It's presented in character action. It's presented in setting. But there is no need to dive into the expanding universe material um, if you don't want to and if you don't have the time like a normal person. Right. And um, as you said previously, like these films were set up for people who also had no you know prior knowledge of the original trilogy and i think it does that well i think it sets up its own narrative pretty well um and and it and it creates that through line from these three Mm -hmm. all the way on to the next three films uh and then again not to continually rag on seven that that through line is severed at some point Yep. Uh, between six and seven, there is a, there is a severing of you know the the force uh, or some shit I don't know, and we we get some nebulous garbage. But uh, in episode one, we have <laughs> back a setup we that feels <laughs> back to the movie we're talking about. In episode one, we have a setup that is organic, mm-hmm. and and that will lead us to the films that people know and love. Yeah, um, and more to the point, as like a self-contained story, because ideally, um, actually, I have the educational term for, for this episode, uh, oh. the, the storytelling term uh, trilogy. Um, a trilogy is not um, a story in three parts. That is not what the definition of trilogy is. A trilogy is 
three stories that can be read or can be uh, consumed individually, but can also be consumed as three parts of a greater whole. So ideally, in 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 a true trilogy, um, you can watch episode one on its own. You can watch episode two on its own. You can watch, watch episode three on its own. But you can also watch all three of them as a larger part. Um, so, like the just as a counterpoint example, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is technically not a trilogy because you need to read all three of them. Um, they are one. They are one story split up into three parts. Um, the movies are a little different. The movies are more standalone, but the the, no, the novels of the Lord of the Rings, um, it, it is one big book chopped up into three. Whereas um, Star Wars, the prequel trilogy, um, is more of a more of a true trilogy in my opinion because, as with this movie, it has its own self-contained narrative. It has uh, a conflict. It has the resolution of the conflict, and then it ends. But of course, you can you can watch episode two. Um, immediately after like a good fan and just watch all three right in a row like I have done twice so I guess to tie back this this movie into real world politics um, we did make the connection between the Jedi and neoliberalism already Um, I think one of the most telling examples of that is when Qui-Gon goes to visit or when Qui-Gon is trapped on Tatooine and Anakin asks him if he's going to free the slaves and Qui-Gon says something like no I didn't come here to free slaves like sorry kid like um yeah that was interesting because um tatooine is like outside of the republic Republic, right so the republic has anti-slavery laws and again this is interesting stuff you know from like any standpoint it's interesting again world building i think is just the best word we're gonna have to use for this but Mm -hmm. um as much as we disdain this term uh like yeah the fact that like okay here's a republic there's laws that we discuss in this film. Like that's interesting. And the, the Jedi, presumably their, their authority. And I know this because I read the expanded universe and shit. Their, their authority only pertains um, to planets within the boundaries of the Republic. But like if, if they, if they purport to be some kind of um, spiritual quasi religious, like, platonic i like striving for the platonic ideal of goodness why would their quest be restrained inside the boundaries of the boundaries of the republic that is like that that is in a weird way kind of nationalistic because like they're they're only policing and mediating within republic planets yeah that is interesting um i yeah just throughout that whole scene um it's just like i don't i just couldn't believe that they were gonna, especially he was just gonna let like Anakin's mom stay a slave. I was just like, really? Like, I mean, I don't know. If you're, if you're, if you're right now outside of the Republic, um, and like, yeah. So the setup is that um, Anakin and his mom are slaves to this like um, parts dealer this junk anti-Semitic caricature. Guy. Yeah, and he is really Watto is very much anti-Semitic car- caricature. He's this little fat flying alien who has like kind of a big nose and like stubbly beard. It's so, um, it's and so like bad. a kind of eastern european accent it's 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 there is a few characters like this obviously jar jar you know um and like the jamaican accent um that that is inflected there and then the um the nemoidians uh the trade federation as asian stereotypes the devious greedy asian stereotype again as much as i have come full circle and appreciate this movie I, i i was 
taken aback at how how blatant um newt gunray's accent was it, it's yeah it's probably the worst one by yeah. far um i yeah i don't even know anything about the actor i don't know i don't really but it was bad yeah um but anyway, so yeah, Anakin and his mom are slaves to Watu. Uh, Watu won them actually from the huts in a card game or gambling or something. Um, pod racing. Pod racing. It was okay. So yeah, he won them pod racing uh, gamble. But so yeah, I just don't know why um, he like Qui Gon just wouldn't kill Watu. So the Jedi mind trick doesn't work on Watu's race, the Toydarians. Oh my god! Even that could be read as like a stupid alt-right anti-semitic bullshit like the the true masters of the galaxy you can't like influence their thoughts you know like god yeah it's... jesus oh that's actually awful oh my god yes, yeah it's, it's like i a... hate this movie <laughs> <laughs> this movie's so anti-semitic oh my god um, um but like yeah it's just like okay so you can't jedi mind trick this guy you're working outside of the boundaries of where you have jurisdiction anyway like I don't know, just fucking Merc Watto. Like just, or even, just like, like chop him, up. him. Just like right, just do anything. It'd just be like, nope. Sorry, your mom's got to stay a slave forever. Because like the in-universe explanation is that the slaves have an explosive chip inside them, and they don't know where it is. So like, if if they tried to run away, Watto could just like threaten to blow them up. Um, In but, the movie, they discuss that too, don't they? But they don't say it's explosive, don't they? Just say like it's a tracking chip. No, Anakin goes and they'll blow you up. Boom. Oh, does he? Okay, yeah, I don't remember that part. I, can quote I paid a lot of attention to this movie, guys. <laughs> it's, um, whereas I can quote it verbatim. Um, but yeah, the, my, my point is like, yeah, there are flimsy plot reasons why they can't just escape. But that only goes to show that the Jedi, the Jedi's neoliberal conception of like like this fetishistic devotion to nonviolence, except in certain specific uh, connotations or, or contexts um it's dumb it's dumb and like it's unethical at the end of the day like non-violence as it's presented through hollywood uh narratives is really dumb it, it, it's this bourgeois affectation that like tries to claim the moral high ground without doing anything else whereas um i i do think violence can be justified in many con in many real world contexts um determining when in where it's appropriate of course it, it like, like that's what we have to like figure out and we, we we can't just indiscriminately be violent to whomever we want to but violence in and of itself is not unethical i think there's a very strong case you made for that um in this this movie undercuts the neoliberal uh conception of like nonviolence as this like platonic ideal um so once again this movie this movie critiques uh the the democratic establishment in a good way yeah, no, it's interesting. It's really just like, what, what in what in service of what? Like, why are you nonviolent? Like, what is the point of your nonviolence in terms of the Jedi, right? And then like yeah. they and and when they do, um, you know, uh, become violent when they use their lightsabers, like it is always in defense of like you know the system of a queen of, of, a queen. of a queen like of a monarch yeah. like <laughs> you know and it's interesting it's interesting that like there is a queen and that like all the different planets still have their own ostensibly have their own governments but like they all have there's a but there's like a galactic senate as well like how much do you want me to nerd out right now and tell you the governmental breakdown of the galaxy 
I don't because this episode will be three right. hours long. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we'll I'll, I'll, I'll limit it to information that we're given in the movie. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, Go so ahead. Queen Amidala is elected. It it is it is like a it is a monarch title, but she is in effect just a president of the planet. That's stupid. It is stupid, but whatever. It's it, that's what we're given. And um, <laughs> Senator Palpatine represents. Um, not only Naboo, but like all the planets in that sector. So like he he has more of an outsized influence within the Galactic Republic, within the Senate building, but uh Queen Amidala has more power specifically on Naboo. That that that's how I interpret what the movie presents. Okay, yeah, I mean that makes sense. I mean she tries to make decisions about what how Naboo is responding to the Trade Federation. Yeah. And then she's hampered a little bit by the Senate but yeah, because the Senate doesn't want to make any kind of declarations and such. Um, also, in, interestingly enough, the Senate, um, the Trade Federation, has a seat in the Senate. This this conglomerate of this this company has representative in the Galactic Senate, um, which is again, wittingly or unwittingly, a great send up of um, of our of the politics of our current world right now. Yeah, and they even mentioned um, like the the. They say the bureaucrats are going to get involved mm-hmm. when that one blue guy with the horns goes over to Masa talk Ma- to. Masameda. Yeah, that guy. So, like, what's his role? Because, you know, um, uh, Ian McDermott, Palpatine just says, like, oh, you know, the, the bureaucrats are going to get involved now and we won't be able to do anything about the Trade Federation. God damn it, this movie's so good because, like, <laughs> cause, because generalized. Um, objections to like this very non-specific conception of corruption is a reactionary trait. Criti- like criticizing corruption without being specific about it, and, and like the idea that that there that governments need to be purged of corruption. That is how reactionaries pander to the popular spirit. Right. Yep. I mean, we're seeing that in Brazil right now, of yes. course. I mean, before... Um, and in Venezuela. Before the... And in Venezuela, of course, yeah. And, and in our own fucking country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how Trump got to the presidency. The drain the swamp now. Drain the swamp. And um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not, like, playing apologetics for, for corruption in politics or whatever. But, it's good, uh, folks. Yeah, <laughs> hey, it's... We're in the money, folks. Um, but... It, it, it's just a reminder that you have to be specific um, when when criticizing corruption. Otherwise, it's um, is often a stand-in for consolidation uh, of of reactionary power, which which is emphasized, which is a uh, depicted in this movie through Palpatine whispering in, in Amidala's ear as as the siren call to like purge corruption from the democratic process. Yeah. So um, back to that the blue guy with the horns like who is he why does he want to get per why does he want to purge him like what's up with that because it's not explained outside of just calling him a bureaucrat he, he's kind of he's a he's a weirdly prominent um tertiary character that's masameda um i, I forget i think a species is called like a chagrin or something um a chad chag he's a chad ch- he's a chad ch- ch- <laughs> i'm gonna look it up and i'll add it in the show notes um cool all right he's a hanging chad he cool. He's kind of like the speaker of the house or something. He He's consistent throughout all three prequels. Um, and when Yoda and Darth Sidious have their showdown in episode three, spoiler alert, he's in the room with Palpatine. And then like he, he scurries off after Yoda and Palpatine start 
having a lightsaber fight. So I don't know how implicate how much involved how much he was involved with Palpatine at this point, but by the end of the prequels, he knows that Palpatine is Darth Sidious. Ah, okay. And then he's a willing uh, co-conspirator yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. He's at that point he um he helps organize the search for Yoda after Yoda escapes. Ah, okay. So that's interesting as well because, you know, if that is the individual um, or representative of, of a class of people in in government who Palpatine wants to purge, it's interesting that that, that individual uh, is, is an ally later. Mm-hmm. So as much as, you know, some in, in governments uh, across the world want to purge corruption, um, you know, that's that is where they get paid you know that is how you get paid sometimes right i mean like the corrupt forces in our own government which is stuff like lobbyists i mean that's like that's where you get your money that's where you get your support from right i mean that's just like that's how it works and and in the call to like combat corruption it 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 sounds very good to to um i'm not i'm gonna say it low information voters it sounds very good to people who don't pay much attention to politics like oh of of course we don't want our, our politicians to be corrupt um, so like with obviously the, 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 obvious example is Trump when he says stuff like drain the swamp. And when he says stuff like clean up Washington, um, that sounds good if you have no idea what his policies are or would be. Um, and, and that's how fascism gains a foothold in a democratic society because like nobody likes their shitty bureaucrats. Nobody likes like their Senator, nobody likes their, their governor or whatever, um, so if, if you have a charismatic enough individual, like Senator Palpatine, who comes in promising to fix all the messes, um, again, I'm, I'm just repeating like basic U.S.-centric uh, uh, political analysis from the past few years, but it is kind of eerie how how much episode one um, like predicted this in a way, kind of. Yep. So you heard it here, folks. Uh, Palpatine is Trump. Uh, Yoda is Hillary Clinton. I think I think the resistance grifters would say that Palpatine is like Putin and and Trump is mm. Jabba the Hutt. That's what they would say. Because <laughs> or like I don't know Bannon. Like when Bannon was still in the race, like maybe like Bannon is like Palpatine or something. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Um, Who cares? Fuck it. We're no. We don't do that here at Procon. <laughs> Um, another thing I really love about this movie in the whole prequel trilogies is the design, um, set design, ship design, costume design is all kick-ass. It is, it's, it stands up. It it is as good as the original trilogy. Like I, I, I will defend that to my dying breath. Yeah. The, the cities are interesting. Um, I, uh, that's kind of something that's stuck out for me, like Naboo. Um, it's just, 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 yeah, it's, it's like Venice basically. it, It has, yeah, it's uh, that was pretty cool. I mean, it's something we haven't seen in, in, in any of the other uh, movies, basically. Um, then, um, I mean, guess uh, where's the Senate? What's plan- what planet is the Senate on? Coruscant. Coruscant. Yeah, that was kind of whatever. I mean, um, but the Senate building itself mm-hmm. and like the the construction of the Senate chamber is kind of cool. Um, the one floating um platform in the middle where the where the chancellor is and well that then, platform isn't floating that's on a that's on a dais sure whatever <laughs> <laughs> the senate pods float around it but the, the senate pods, the chancellor's right. so, podium is, is is a podium yeah so all the senators um and their 
I don't know, I guess attaches factions or, or attaches get like their own little floating pod pod thing. Um uh, it kinda looks like a like a a little raft. Yeah, yeah. Um it's just it's circular. I mean it's uh and then yeah, they, they can attach to like the walls, but then like when they start talking, like when the senators start talking, they like can move closer or something to the dais. One of the, one of the only downsides to the design that I can think of is like Coruscant itself. Coruscant's interesting because um, that planet had been created for one of the pre, one of the expanded universe novels, the the, the Thrawn trilogy, um, before the prequels came out, and then. Um, George Lucas liked the idea that he he brought it into the fold into the movie. Um, huh. I, ju- I just wish that some of the some of the planets or some of the buildings had more like of a cool texture design to them. They all, they all look kind of boring. Um, but the idea of Coruscant is 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 neat. It makes sense. And, th- and this this is one of the things that the prequels does that the original trilogy did not do. Um, the original trilogy is very much like a guerrilla war depiction of like a guerrilla war right like we don't really see too many examples of civilization in the original trilogy we see like moss eisley and we see cloud city and that's about it uh whereas the prequels because it's very tied up in the the fall of a democracy um we have to see homes we have to see like cities we have to see where these uh characters live and work and exist when they're not going on like epic quests across the galaxy and as far as that goes, it, it does it pretty well because we see we see a backwater like Tatooine, we see kind of a mid-sized planet like like Naboo in, in the city of Feed, and then we see like the bustling metropolis at the heart of it all, Coruscant. Uh, it, pre- it presents a layered society like that in a pretty believable way. Yeah, and um, especially you know I might just harp on Naboo a lot because I don't know I like the design a lot, but I also like the. Um, the the Gungan city as mm. well because Utagun- not only U- Uta- is it Utagunga if you would oh Utagunga yeah of course I knew that I just wanted you to say it there we go um, okay. <laughs> but you know it's it's a cool design they're they're like these these spherical um, bubbles mm-hmm. where people live inside them it's submerged it's in like the lake or ocean of Naboo I guess um, but it's it's interesting that like there's that your race of people, this indigenous race, uh, to Naboo, uh, who are very alien looking creatures, uh, and, and, you know, they're living in symbiosis with, um, you know, the, the, the rest of the the inhabitants of Naboo who Mm -hmm. live in cities like Theed, basically, um, it's, it's just set up that, that, um, like strata, um, better than probably any other film in, in the Star Wars, uh, franchise has. I mean, we, we've seen other, uh, you know, planets where they have indigenous people, like Tatooine has the Tusken Raiders who are, who are indigenous. Um, obviously, um, uh, the Ewoks on, uh, on Yavin, um, but the, the Ewoks uh, are on Endor, the first move Endor. Endor, right fuck. Damn, I knew it. I was like, I had that wrong. Also, somehow. you're doubly wrong because you're thinking of Yavin 4, which is the moon of the gas giant planet Yavin. Oh, okay. So, yeah, whatever. Bunch <laughs> of bullshit. <laughs> These movies are dumb. World building is stupid. <laughs> yeah. The, I, the Ewoks on Endor. I mean, so, yeah, we, we finally get to see, like, where these indigenous, like, alien 
races like live and how their society is set up mm-hmm. with their laws and their religion um and yeah it's just like it's something that we see in literally no other film yeah i think um i think there's something to be said for for depicting the the way that these two societies live next to each other it, it, it's very much um i mean it's it's not particu- particularly um elaborate but it is like the a, a class consciousness it is um it is a depiction of social stratification um the indigenous peoples who who live one way the presumed colonists of um of the naboo humans who live another way and um that isn't especially prominent, like you were saying, in, in the original trilogy's depiction of indigenous um, races on their own planets um, versus humans who come to visit them. Right, yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too, um, just the the dynamics and the interplay of, you know, the Naboo colonial human aliens and, and the Gungans um, very much how it works out in real life like you know um the the gungans um make a um very hasty treaty with the humans because it just it um yeah you know their 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 mutually assured destruction is the uh is the you know the trade federation uh um blockade and invasion uh so they make this treaty to fight together but like the gungans are literally put on the front lines <laughs> like the gungans are used as cannon as fodder bait, yeah. as bait basically like you just have these gungans with like slingshots facing off against like these droid armies and like yeah they win but like they would they almost lost and um it's it's the threat of like all-consuming capital the trade federation's army which is like as literal weaponization of capital that i can think of in any like blockbuster movie um that threatens their them together that mutually assured destruction but of course the naboo the the, the kind of the bourgeois um the bourgeoisie they form this like specific kind of like treaty along some like with the Gungans by like appealing to this notion of like shared humanity or, or shared like experience um, without any kind of class consciousness. And of course that blows up in the Gungans face literally. Yeah. I mean like the Gungans, um, they, they, they are like at one point um, they turn the tides of the war and they are kind of winning mostly because Jar Jar is totally incompetent. Yes. And like he, he like with, with his clumsiness uh, actually aids uh, the, the Gungan side of the battle by like letting the, 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 are they just called Boombas? The Boombas, like, is that what, yeah. Yeah. Like these giant spherical like bombs. He just like, lets them out of their cradle by accident you and you've heard the theory we have to mention this bullshit the, the theory oh that shit fuck no we don't okay fine yeah. that jar jar was a sith lord he's like a drunken master sith lord behind he's the man behind the man he was the one that was manipulating events to, to occur as they did god i just i fucking hate fan I know, theories I, I don't think that's something we've ever talked about and we should maybe do a whole episode like a primer episode on unfin- fan theories head, and the actual like in theories yeah head canon and like you know what real theories and criticism yeah. look like you know you know you know i don't want to knock like 
you know, I, I don't want to knock fan fiction or anything like that, but there, there is even, there is still a line there between fan fiction and like fan theories, even, you know, like fan fiction is one thing that you create and, um, that is, that is perfectly fine. And sometimes it is better than, you know, the actual media, but like fan theories are fucking nonsense. Yeah. It's, it's a complex, it's a complex topic that definitely deserves its own episode, which, which should be a premium episode, honestly. Um, but for now, we'll leave it at the term headcanon is like rage inducing and it, you, you, uh, I, I don't even have anything. I got nothing. <laughs> I get nothing. <laughs> My right problem now. with headcanon and, and, and fan theories is like, it is a projection of your own like way of interacting with the media onto the media itself, as right. opposed to looking at the media and, and, and analyzing it right. and criticizing it. It's, That's my problem. It's trying to take possession of someone else's story. Right, exactly. As opposed to just, you know, taking it as it is yeah. and, 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 and criticizing it, analyzing it, digesting it, dissecting it, yeah. and all that. So it's, you know, it's my, my, the most infuriating one and, like, one of the most offensive ones is that Toy Story 3 is a metaphor for the Holocaust. Yeah. Oh. It is like, how about you go fuck yourselves? And um, anyway, uh, I guess it ties <laughs> to this because Disney, blah blah blah, Disney sucks. Yeah. Um, but so there's something we haven't talked about at all, which is like one of the biggest spectacles in this film, uh, the pod racing yes. scene. Yes. So um, Anakin Skywalker, slave child who lives on the planet Tatooine, they. It's, I actually I like, didn't remember like how they got to Tatooine, but it's because the the spaceship they're on um, uh, gets damaged. The um, the Nubian spaceship gets damaged um, from Trade Federation ships, so they have to go to Tatooine. And you know what? The reason is because their hyperdrive fuel is leaking. <laughs> oh my god, that's right. They don't call it coaxium though. Everyone who complains about the hyperdrive fuel subplot in the Last Jedi. Um, which I feel the polar opposite from on The Force Awakens, uh, hot take, um, <laughs> or who complains about the, the presence of hyperspace fuel as a plot device in Solo, um, has to eat their words because it had been established all the way back here. Uh, hyperdrive, it's even in the Empire Strikes Back. That's the reason they have to go. Really? That's the reason they have to go to Cloud City is because their hyperdrive hasn't been repaired yet. Wow. So this, all of these films, what we're saying, folks, is all of the good films uh, in deal, this franchise deal with, hy- the hyper- hyper- deal drive. with yeah. hyperdrive fuel, which is a resource, which, again, is something a lot of films don't discuss. Like the things that get vehicles, you know, going, the things that people fight wars over, the, the, materi- resources. the material realities that we have to contend with um, of... of of limited resources uh, dictate our actions and dictate the actions of governments. Yep. Movies don't talk about this except, Oh, wait for it. The star Wars movies. Fuck you. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's why they go to Tatooine because they're, they're out of hyperspace gasoline. Um, and then they get, yes. they get wrapped up in the whole convol- really needlessly convoluted uh, bet with Watto. Yeah. It's interesting. So I actually think that this film is really well paced. Like, yeah. Um, the, the, you know, from the beginning of this film, when the Jedi are on the trade Federation ship to, um, Naboo, when they meet Jar Jar to Tatooine, um, and the introduction of Anakin, 
Skywalker, that's all 30 minutes. I stopped it. I was like, holy shit. They did all of this narrative work in 30 minutes. And a very common criticism of that actually is that we don't meet our main character, Anakin, until 30 minutes in. But I, I don't see how that's a problem. It's not a – how not, is that a criticism? It, I'm, like I'm, that's how it works. I'm, that's how narratively these things should work. I'm just going off of like my – the what I can remember of the Red Letter Media criticism. Like one of their main – one of their main criticisms is that this movie doesn't have a main character in that it kind of does. It's Anakin, but we only meet him 30 minutes into the, the the plot. Well, obviously the main character is Jar Jar. Yeah, I mean. So that's what they don't, you know, they just don't want to reckon with the fact that the main character of this fucking movie is Jar Jar. Yeah. And, um, and they're just, they're just scared that that's the reality. Um, but no, I think like if it if it was fifteen minutes, it would make no sense. Yeah. And if it was more than thirty minutes, then maybe you'd have a legitimate criticism. But the fact that it takes you thirty minutes to establish three separate planets, mm-hmm. um, you know, a a galactic um, conflict involving trade mm-hmm. of all things, yes. <laughs> um, is 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 perfectly paced. And we don't even meet Luke in a, in A New Hope. Like until like twenty minutes into the movie too. Yeah. See, I mean, people yeah, are just you know fucking myopic about this yeah. stuff. Um, anyway, I I do think the Tatooine scene is one of the the most poorly paced aspects of the Super, film. Yeah, it's we we spend way too much time on Tatooine. It it feels like it feels like Qui Gon and Shmi, Anakin's mother, have more of a relationship than Qui Gon and the Queen at that point. Yeah, it's true. Oh, poor Shmi. Yeah, uh, just she all together. Like, yeah, she she got a really she got a really rough deal. Um, especially what happens to her in the in the second one. Um, yeah, but yeah, too much time is spent on Tatooine. I, I, it is pretty dumb. I think that Darth Vader comes from Tatooine just like Luke. Like, I I guess I'm looking at it backwards. Like, of course, it would make sense to send Luke to go there in hiding at the end of Episode Three because like Darth Vader would never look there, but. I don't know. They they could have done a different planet rather than Tatooine, I think. Yeah, but I will say they show us different aspects of Tatooine, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. so it's you see, you know, they mention the moisture farms, of course. I don't think we see any moisture farms specifically. Not in this one. Not in this one, but in the, but we do see, you know, the same city, I guess, or a similar city. It's, is it the same city? No, that that's Mos Espa, which is which is close to Mos Eisley from Episode Four, but they're they're distinct. Okay. Yeah, so we see a different city. We see a city where you know uh, the huts uh, have their pod racing. Yep. Um, so I, I do think it's distinct enough, and I think the pod racing scene is uh, legitimately one of the best action set pieces in the original trilogy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe even one of the best action set pieces in the whole franchise but i don't want to i don't want to deliver that spicy of a take right now i will i, I will I'll, I'll throw it down, i'll throw it down <laughs> that one um okay yeah uh, fuck it, every other scene the, is the best scene the, it's not the best I, i'd say it's one of the best it's like top it's, it's one top of the five best, though, definitely yeah. um easily more more comprehensible and and more thrilling than anything in episode two that i can think of um yeah, it's much better than the fucking Coliseum scene in two. Uh, I I kind of like that one too, but we'll we'll get there. Um, I'm I'm thinking of like the big battles or whatever. Um, oh sure, yeah, those other but battles it, it, in the later half. Of the film. It easily ranks up there with the Battle of Yavin. It easily ranks up there with the Battle of Endor. Um, you 
you take this kind of wonky concept, like jet jet powered chariots, jet powered hovering chariots, and like you you present it in a way that makes sense that like it, it fits into the verisimilitude of the film, but also makes sense to like the layman. Yeah, two giant rockets pull a hover a hover chair makes sense. Um, you have like individual little weird looking aliens that are distinct looking enough that you can remember who's who. And you have our protagonist zipping through them in between. You have the obvious big top dog, Sabalba, who's cheating. Um, and you have, you show him like destroying other pod racers one by one until it's only him and Anakin. And then Anakin is able to beat him because he's just, he has more gumption. He has like the, the will of the force with him. It, it just, it's just like this whole self-contained little like wordless narrative that works really well. Yeah, and you know it's worth mentioning that this scene was heavily inspired by the chariot scene in in the film Ben Hur with Charlton Heston. Um, a lot of beats in in this film um, in this scene come from you know certain beats in in that movie as well, um, especially at the end when Anakin and Zabulba's pods um, get like hooked up together. Mm-hmm. Um, that that happens with Charlton Heston and the other uh, racers chariots like they get hooked together and, um, and you were saying that um, that whole sequence is has no score to it just like this right the Ben-Hur chariot sequence has no score and the pod racing scene has no score either um, it really focuses on sound editing and sound it's design so good so good and it's so good in this. I mean, like each pod has its own distinct sound. Um, the the sound of the controls. I mean, the sound of the crowd. Um, it it is like it is a well constructed scene. And you know, I think I, were the Red Letter Media guys critical of this scene in specifically. Like, no, I don't as, remember. As far as I know, e- e- even detractors of this movie do appreciate the podcast. Do, do the podcast do appreciate the podcast? <laughs> they appreciate our podcast. Thank you, folks. I appreciate it as well. As far as I know, even the most ardent critics of this movie still um, are pretty okay with the pod racing scene. Good. They should be. If they're not, they're dumb. Um, it's just, it's a great scene. Um, it's also worth noting that um, Warwick Davis, yeah. who is a uh, a franchise regular, uh, he has uh, he he's actually I think he's two characters in this scene. He's like the little Rodian alien who's friends with Anakin. Wald. Wald. He's Wald. He? I don't think so. Yeah, okay, okay. I, no, he's Wald. I looked it okay. up. Um, but he's also a spectator. Uh, who's sitting next to Watto during the pod race scene. Um, it, what's interesting about this character, however, um, he's not named uh, in, in, at, the, at, the, at the time, in, in 1999, he wasn't, he wasn't given a name. But uh, after the Solo movie came out, where Warwick Davis played a part of the Cloud Rider gang, uh, it was retconned so that Hell yes. these two characters were the same character named Weasel. Hell yes. So Warwick Davis plays Weasel when he's, you know, at his lowest as this like skeezy pod racing gambler, you know, who who's chummy with the likes of Watto. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you fast forward to the, the creation of the Empire and he becomes a fucking marauding freedom fighter. That's uh, the most like inspiring. One of the most interesting, yeah, and most inspiring fucking characters. It's just like forget this An- one small character. Forget Anakin. This weasel is the yeah. chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. So 
this is why it, it is a reason why the pod racing scene is amazing, but obviously not the main reason. Also, I'm going to stand for pod racing too right now. Cause I, there, I have seen some criticism that like, Oh, wouldn't the engines just burn up the racers? Obviously not you fucking morons because the, the cockpit of these racers clearly have repulsor lifts in them. So they can elevate above the exhaust and above the, the, the kind of the blast of the engines. And furthermore, the engines are placed to the sides of the um, of the pods, so like you're you're not getting a face full of exhaust, you're not getting a face full of like the the, the engine blast. You're comfortably floating above and uh, to the side of both pods, uh, both engine pods. So you're fine that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for all you pedantic nerds out there, um, we have a much more pedantic nerd on this podcast, <laughs> so go fuck yourselves. You will always lose when you come up against Nick. <laughs> I was I was going to respond with the Star Wars quote, but I'm not going to, so... Um, yeah, <laughs> well, it's uh, to do a Avengers quote, uh, we have a Nick. <laughs> um... Yeah, even even the uh, the battle between the Gungans and the the Trade Federation army, uh, which is cool too. I, I really like the these like skeletal robot uh, capitalism army. It's it's a cool image. Um, that's a cool battle, and like I like how that battle is literally like it's almost like Revolutionary War themed. It's like mm-hmm. uh, marching marching muskets coming up against an indigenous army who fight them in an open field. And um, the way that it goes from that to the the clone trooper armies versus the droid armies in episode two and three, and then it goes into like basically World War Two in space. That kind of charts the evolution of real world Earth warfare in a very cool visual manner. Yeah, it's interesting. And even within episode one, there are two different forms of warfare because um, they mention that some of the the Naboo um, like army, you know mm-hmm. the the human army who had been captured by the trade federation. Some of them had escaped and had like created these like resistance cells. So we see some of that, uh, it, you know, in the, in the, there's cross cutting between the, the battle of Naboo, uh, and the battle of Theed basically. So we have this revolutionary war type, you know, fight, uh, two sides, you know, just facing each other. And then we have like, these this like guerrilla warfare urban guerrilla warfare um fight of you know um queen amidala and her troops against the the droid army um within theed and also um, as they go towards the cl- the throne it's a it's a four-way cross cross cut because you have those two battles going oh on. shit it is four you have yeah. the space battle of naboo uh which is kind of a, just a rip right. of, of battle of yavin like that one that's not particularly very very interesting in my opinion and they also no, and it barely it it they barely cut back to the the dogfight in space in this. It one. was to give Anakin something to do at the final battle, I right? Think. Um, and then and then you have of course the lightsaber fight between Darth Maul and Obi Wan and Qui Gon, um, which which is brilliantly um, executed. I I actually kind of dislike um, the lightsaber fighting in the prequels. Um, I mean, th- there's the standard criticism. What one of like the OG nerd criticisms is that like it's too flashy. It looks too much like stage fighting, um, and I that is that does kind of come through in episodes two and three. But I really like the the episode one lightsaber duel at the end. Um, 
it, it is theatrical, it is acrobatic, and it is very dance-like, but um, it feels much more weighty and real than like most of what we see in episode two. Yeah, I remember a lot of the criticisms around the the lightsaber fights in in the prequel films. I remember I'm not sure if it's Red Letter Media or other, um, you know, nerd reviewers like Cinema Sins, where like oh, they God, they'll do like freeze frames and they'll show you like, oh look, the lightsabers don't even touch there, or like this move makes no yeah. sense. That 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 was it. A different person. I think that was like the only thing that person ever did. It's it's called like the totally phantom menace or something. Yeah, I mean whatever it was, it was stupid. Yeah. Like honestly, you know, even if you're gonna point out, if you're gonna pinpoint um, lightsaber fights that make no sense, it wouldn't be this right. one. Like it is, it is one of the better lightsaber fights in in like really I mean, the whole saga, the franchise. Yeah. Like it, it's it, it it is as much as it is like. Like you said, like this more balletic um, style that maybe we don't get in the original trilogy. Like, so what? Like, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, like they are supposed to be, you know, these these samurai. They have, you know, this this um, this lineage from you know these more uh, eastern, you know, these these Asian influences on on the fighting we abu george um, lucas so like, full force. we abu george lucas exactly like so it makes sense that they're it's almost like a it's almost like a, a like a wuxia mm-hmm. you know like we've talked about before like you know the the chinese um the chinese story and it's in universe justified wuxia because they have the force so of course they can fly around right yeah. right exactly i mean i wish they did more with that honestly yeah they i wish they did more with it in a way that felt kind of grounded paradoxically kind of grounded because like they they do kind of get too much into that in the in in like episode three and it looks kind of ridiculous um but what i really like about the episode one duel is that all three fighters like clearly have different styles of fighting but it's not over the top it's like god kill me but like in canon there are seven seven different forms of lightsaber <laughs> combat which, which i'll have like i knew you're gonna get to which, that which yeah. i'll have distinct sub sub versions and like sub sub development types um and, and obi-wan qui-gon and um darth maul all fight in different uh lightsaber forms and you can kind of pick up on that while watching this this movie but it's not like pedantically overly broken down like shown to you in a way that's like really obvious it's just like yeah Obi-Wan is more energetic and flashy than Qui-Gon, who's kind of more conservative and basic. And then you have Darth Maul, who's just like this like whirlwind, like dynamo of like laser energy. And uh, they, they kind of, the way that the fight is, is paced and the way they kind of bounce off each other literally um, works really well. Yeah. And um, I couldn't remember initially when I started the film, I was like, how exactly does Darth Maul deliver the finishing blow on Qui-Gon? And, it's interesting because it's it's just it's so quick, and it really um, it's indicative of like how dangerous and how quick lightsaber fighting yeah. is. You know, like I mean, he just does two little moves yep. and then he's able to stab him. I mean, he just he he hits Qui Gon twice with the actual hilt yeah, he, of his he lightsaber. Tricks him. Yeah, yeah, he tricks him. He does a fake out and then he he hits him in the face. And then that opens him up for the killing blow. Yeah. Um, so it it is interesting to see just it's it is like it makes sense that it's like only Jedi and Sith can wield these 
you know, these weapons because like there is so much power in, involved and there's so much skill and there's so much speed and agility. Like it makes sense that you have to be like this force being to do it basically. Um, and how like on just in a second's notice, like that's it. You're done. And the, the lightsaber as, as with everything Star Wars, I feel really conflicted over it because um, it works as such a good metaphor for like the purpose of the Jedi. Like normally it's, it's just this humble little cylinder of metal, but when it needs to be, it can be like the, one of the most dangerous weapons in the universe. Um, but you need to have like such refined skill to wield it that anyone who could wield it would be naturally disciplined enough to do so because you need the discipline to even turn it on and, and use it effectively. So like, it, it's a really good, like literal prop for, for uh, symbolizing what the Jedi is supposed to do. But what, one of the criticisms of the prequels that does hold some weight in my opinion is um, they whip out the lightsabers too much. They use them for too many action scenes. Like they, they, like in, in the opening, like they, they hear the explosion of the ship and they jump up and they turn their lightsabers on. Like, that's it. Like they need to be more conservative with how they show, uh, in, in how they use the lightsabers that, that would have made them feel more important, I think. Right. And I mean, that's because like you sell lightsaber toys right. and right. that's how you get children, um, excited about these films you have to have you know these these shiny swords that people fight with i mean again like these films are for children honestly like these films this film was pg when that came up i was like holy shit all I, and then all of them are i mean really i mean ma- the new ones are pg-13 episode, right? episode three was the first pg-13 yeah and then they, they're all pg-13 after that it, if it's PG, it's for children. Yeah. And and, I, God, that's, and how do you get children excited? You get excited with crazy monsters and 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 sword. We're, we're going to attract so much. If if this episode ever does numbers, we're going to attract so much hate from Robot and Media fans. But like that is another one of their criticisms that like these movies aren't for children because like they have like decapitations and they have like slavery and they have like implied rape in the second one. But like the just because there is some the movie like like touches briefly upon some more mature aspects like like these are kids movies they're not like they're not like substantive like elaborate science fiction science fantasy films that like kids happen to like like they they are fantasy movies for kids that adults happen to like right yeah the the two people right now speaking about these films (laughs) and all these other you know middle-aged nerds uh, red letter media and so on like we are the anomalies or what you know these anomalies that came from just this insane culture and discourse around these films i mean it's just like it's it's made for kids folks i think i'm gonna contradict myself and bring up episode seven again but i think that's one of the reasons episode seven left such a sour taste in my mouth because that movie is not a movie for kids that that is a movie for 35 year old fanboys who have good childhood memories of enjoying these movies as kids. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's the nostalgia trip, right? I mean, that's, that's, that is why you hire someone like JJ Abrams to make a movie. You, you, JJ, (laughs) Jar Jar Abrams. No, that's a bad, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a good title that we only give to people we like. (laughs) He's not worthy of the Uh, Metal Jar Jar. 
He's not, yeah, he's not man- worthy of the mantle. Only one man is, I'm at yes. best, of course. Um, but right, I mean, that's why, that's why, you know, he was, he was tapped to make those films. Yeah. Uh, he, he does nostalgia well. That is, um, that is what he trades in. So I guess, I guess the last, um, little, little thing I wanted to hit upon, um, regarding the prequel trilogy, but, but this one in particular, cause it really, it really embodies this I've, uh, the most of all three. Um, there is a difference between science fiction and science fantasy. Um, everyone, everyone kind of knows this by now. Everyone makes the difference between science fiction, which is more hard uh, depictions of, of science, more more detailed depictions of science, and, and then science fantasy. Because Star, Star Wars is like magic and wizards with a patina of science, like like lacquered over it, and that's fine. I don't, I don't think that's to the detriment of a genre piece like this. Um, but it is, I guess it's not really important, but it, it, it is central to understanding these movies. Like th- these movies are powered by magic. Like they're powered by the force, which is magic, which is like a, an elaborate way to say magic. And um, to pedantically pick at like plot details or like setting details of like, the technical aspects of like different models of ship is to miss the spirit of how, of how these movies are made. Also, um, we have to throw the haters a bone here because the midichlorians kind of do fall on that side of, of giving, giving up the ghost of giving away the, the, the magic. Yeah. The midichlorians are, are dumb. Yeah. There's really just no, reason, no reason to explain that. Um, I, so yeah, for folks who don't know what midichlorians are, it's like it's explained by Qui Gon to Anakin during um, one scene on Tatooine. It's, not, it's, it's on the oh sorry, <laughs> um, it's the like living microscopic creatures in your blood that create the Force, yeah. basically. Dumb, dumb, dumb. It's the dumbest it's- shit. In the it's world. literally a way for you to quantify different the power levels of different characters. They they literally state that Anakin's metachlorian count is twenty thousand, which is like more than Yoda's. Oh, is that technically he's more powerful? Like, Shut the fuck up. And um, yeah. Also, what one of the big missteps of the trilogy of this trilogy is that it 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 makes the Force a matter of like bloodline. Like only, you're either born with the Force or you're right. not born with it, which is really dumb because it makes it less mystical. Theoretically, the best way to approach it anyone should potentially be able to like use the force. It's just a matter of, of knowing yourself and knowing your, your, your place in and your connection to the world. Like, again, it's a more Taoist spiritual, like seventies, hippie dippy spiritual conception of, of mysticism, which works better than like stupid bloodline, like heritage bullshit. And, and that's how, you know, the force is presented in, the last Jedi, which of course, um, that whole film will be retconned with the next film. Um, what's that film called? The final Skywalker. Yeah. The dumbest fucking title. Um, all right. Well, uh, to, uh, segue into something that's not dumb, uh, <laughs> workers and their contributions to yes. films. Uh, they're, um, are a few people we want to highlight who are just more of the technical side of things. 
Um, I think we talked about this a little bit during the pod racing scene, but the um, sound mixing and editing, yeah. um, especially in the pod racing scene, but really throughout the film is um, just top notch. Um, so we have Gary Rydstrom, Tom Johnson, Sean Murphy, John Midgley, Ben Burt, and Tom Belford. Um, yeah, the Star Wars films, and especially uh, when you have, um, you know, you have... In this film, you have space, you have, um, you know, land, and you have undersea, even. Like, it's it's going to be monumental to do sound and editing and mixing for that. Uh, and it's not just these people we listed. I mean, it's a whole host of people. It's a whole team, legions. Um, so, yeah, you, you cannot make a Star Wars film or any kind of action film without sound mixing and sound editing. Yeah, and, and other... Um pretty much all the production on this movie is top notch, but one of the standouts to me is the costume design um, with, with the, maybe with the potential exception of like the Jedi ropes, which are boring, but like the rest of the costumes are absolutely incredible. Um, Queen Amidala's wardrobe, especially um, funny, funny, quick story. When I was in college, I took a rhetoric class and we had to talk about our passions. And there was this uh, other girl in the class who she was a fashion student of some kind, very much not a nerd, like, quote unquote normie, I guess, but like not the type I would ever guess to be, be super into Star Wars. But um, when she was fielding questions at the end of her talk about fashion design and movies, um, one of the questions was, what's your movie with your favorite costumes in it? And she said episode one, um, specifically citing Queen Amidala's wardrobe, which is incredible throughout the movie. Um, and so the lead costume designer was Trisha Bigger. Trisha Bigger. I almost said Beggar, like Beggar's Canyon. <laughs> so yeah costume design is another stand uh standout aspect of the production yeah and then um this is a funny tie-in to a previous episode uh-huh. of ours um so most action films or most hollywood films in general actually i mean it, probably every film even some independent films at this point um have second units or even third units or so on and so mm-hmm. forth but especially when you're doing a, a film as large as this um you're going to have different units of production that can do shooting during fin- principal photography simultaneously okay. so um a second unit will have you know a different director cinematographer everything basically sure. Um, and it just so happens that the second unit director of episode one of Phantom Menace yes. is Roger Christian, yes. the director of the film Battlefield Earth, um, because he actually was involved with, I think, uh, art design for the original trilogy, and he won an Oscar for that as well for A New Hope. Um, so, yeah, oh, it's yes. just funny that this guy uh, was involved here as well. And this is... Um, Right before uh, Battlefield Earth, right? Because Battlefield Earth is the year is is two thousand, yeah, the next year. Um, and then we have um, some actors that we want to highlight. These uh, these guys are pretty obvious, but um, it's it's worth doing a shout out because as we mentioned, um, they went through a lot. Yeah. After this film was released, so Jake Lloyd, the nine year old child. It, it like we have to emphasize that he is a child yeah. like and then this is the end of his career more right? or less um he, he's done some sporadic really small things but like nothing I, I know he went through depression he he i don't 
I'm not going to claim this without having an attribution, but I, I seem to remember that he, he had some um, substance abuse issues um, directly stemming from his experiences um, with this movie or his experiences following this movie. Um, but yeah, very fucked up situation. And like the, the Ur example of, of toxic uh, nerd fandom. Right. And to piggyback off of that, I'm at best um, who played Jar Jar, who did the motion capture, one of the first, if not the first motion capture. Um, I, again, uh, crappy, crappy research on our part, but I, I seem to believe there was one other very small example of motion capture before this in a Hollywood movie. But this, this is by far the most recognizable um, example of, of motion capture, yes. Yeah, I mean, this um, is seminal in terms of motion yeah. capture yeah. in film, you know, we always talk about um, Andy Serkis and, and Lord of the Rings films, but like without the work that, um, you know, um, industrial light and magic did on Jar Jar, there would be no Gollum in the Lord there of the Rings films. There would be no Hulk in and Avengers. There'd yeah. be no Hulk in Avengers. There'd be no Hulk in the Ang Lee Hulk, which maybe people would be excited yes. about, but those people could fuck themselves. <laughs> um, so yeah, Ahmed Best, uh, you know, he was a lifelong Star Wars fan at this point. Uh, he was super excited yep. to be in these films. And I mean, you know, we we know what happened after that. I mean, the, the man, like, it, he only started really talking about it in the last few years because it was like so detrimental to his mental health. He does, he at least seems to be in a much better place now. He has like a family. He does like inspirational speaking or something. Um, and, and he, he does talk about like his, his depression and his suicidal thoughts that, that he grappled with, but, um, it, it's from a place of like, I'm better now. And he, he seems to be like reaching out to people and, and doing something with his negative experiences. But still like, uh, the, the reception to a film should not do this to the actors. Like that is a problem in our society. That is a problem in the culture that we have created in the wake of this trilogy. Like, so if you were a nerd who still to this day has problems with Jake Lloyd and Ahmed Best's performances of Anakin and Jar Jar, you are scum to me. You are fucking terrible and you should have a hard time sleeping. And they should be banished to the spice mines of Kessel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I guess shout out to George Lucas, uh, the man who, the man who appears in every Star Wars uh, credits role for some reason. Uh, Lewis, who would you recommend uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace to? I would recommend this film to um, nerdy political wonk types um, who only see politics uh, in, in everything. Although they'll get more <laughs> mileage out of this than they will out of West Wing. Yeah, for sure, actually. Like, ironically, this movie has more to say about the state of our political reality now than West Wing. I I will defend that statement. Yep, I think that's true. Um, So, Nick, what's our woke recommendation? Honestly, like, prequel haters. Like, like, everyone has seen these movies. Everyone has seen the original in the the, the trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Uh, Revisit it. Revisit it with an open mind. I can't guarantee that you'll like it, but I, I think um, a prequel hater who approaches it at, at least with, with with 
with as little preconceived notions as possible, th- there will be more to appreciate than than you've kind of been conditioned conditioned into thinking there is. Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, I I was never into Star Wars as much as Nick was. Um, Clearly, but I. <laughs> But I did, you know, at, at some point, maybe in high school and college, as the internet grew and as the film discourse around this film grew, I was, you know, in that swamp of just thinking, like, the fucking prequels are awful. You know, I didn't I didn't want to rewatch them. I was, like, ashamed that I had them on DVD. Um, but... Yeah, rewatching them now, I'm like, I, I do not understand what happened. It was it was just like it's just such a, a cultural moment. Yeah. I think it, it just makes so much sense if you look at like mid two thousands as opposed to now where we can I kinda, you know, have um a better twenty twenty vision on this. Um but uh yeah, I guess our um our bespoke recommendation is um for people who like Warwick Davis, the true reason to watch the this true, film. The true cho- the only chosen one, the true chosen one of the trilogy. <laughs> Our Warwick Davis stands out there. All right, folks. So um, we'll see you next week where uh, we continue our walk down nostalgia lane here uh, with a critical and uh, acutely leftist eye when we review episode two, Attack of the Clones. See you then, folks. See you then. We all wound up on Tatooine That's where we found this boy Oh my, my, this here Anakin guy Maybe Vader someday later Now he's just a small fry And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi